Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is William F. Eady, the author of When Communication Became a Discipline. In When Communication Became a Discipline, Eady argues that speech and journalism professors embraced the concept of communication between 1964 and 1982. They changed the names of their scholarly societies and journals and revised their academic curricula. Five of what Eady identifies as strands of scholarship became and remained central to this transformation. Communication is not a traditional academic discipline, but its scholars convince their colleagues to understand and embrace it. When communication became a discipline presents an argument with historical evidence that illustrates scholarly creativity at its finest. William F. Eady is Professor Emeritus of Journalism and Media Studies and the former director of the School of Communication at San Diego State University, where he was responsible for leadership of a large program that encompassed all aspects of communication, media, and journalism. Bill Eady was the Associate Director of the National Communication Association, where he worked with researchers and promoted communication research to a variety of audiences. He served as the first editor of the Journal of Applied Communication Research after it became an NCA publication and is the current editor of the Western Journal of Communication. His scholarship has focused on the development of the communication discipline, He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the NCA's Golden Anniversary Award for Outstanding Article Published in the Fields Journal. William Eady, welcome to the New Books Network. So glad to be here, Tom. Uh, I'd like to begin our conversation today by asking what brought you to this particular project, or another way to pose the same thing is to say, why this book now? Well, this book goes back quite a ways. Um, It goes back to when I was actually working for the National Communication Association. And we were, at the time, trying to defend communication as a discipline to a a number of different audiences, including funding agencies in in Washington, D.C., such as the National Science Foundation and the National 
uh, endowment for the humanities. Uh, we were we were having some success at it, but it was tough because people would say, "But you're not really a discipline. Eh? You're you're you've got too many other things here that that uh, that you're working from." So, what kind of argument can you make? And and I started to try to make those arguments uh, in conjunction with other my colleagues, other of my colleagues at NCA, and eventually I was I was trying to pull all these things together. And I said, I, I need to write a book about this. And it took a while to write the book, but, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> so you begin the book with some of the problems associated with defining both the idea of communication as, as well as the concept of a discipline. Um, so, but before we get into this chapter, I just want to pose a question. Um, and as a little bit of context, let me say that several years ago, I wrote a piece for a fairly well-positioned journal. It's not one that's housed in any of the scholarly associations you discuss in the book, but it's one that's reasonably well-recognized. And in the initial draft of this essay, I referred to communication as a discipline. Um, the editor then sent it back to me with the comment that as far as he was concerned, communication was not, in fact, a discipline. Uh, but something closer to what he wanted to call a field. Now, at the time, I was just desperate to get my name into print, so uh, I would have called communication a leprechaun if he'd have asked me to. Uh, but my question is, what do you see as the stakes involved in referring to communication as either a discipline or as a field? Well, a field is a weaker term. And and I think it's a it's a term that people who are suspicious of communication want to lay on us uh, because they will say, well, you are, you, you have, you have too many irons in the fire. You, you come from too many directions at once. Yes. Communication is a worthy area of study, but how you study it uh, is in so many, so many different ways and you're not a you're not a science. You're not a social science. Uh, you're not a humanity. So, therefore, you can't call yourself a discipline. So we'll call you a field, and 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 you need and and <laughs> I hate I hate to say this, but but basically, uh, I think the the underlying message was you're not worthy enough to be called a discipline. So I thought, well, I'm going to start calling us a discipline, and then I'm going to defend that. And uh, and and I think if I can get the rest of, the, of our scholars to start calling us a discipline and thinking of ourselves as a discipline, that we might lose some of this uh, inferiority complex that that we've saddled ourselves with, or we've allowed ourselves to be to be saddled with by by other disciplines uh, who think that that we're we're not worthy of of of, of their time or or of their money if, they, if, if they're a funding agency. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, an important point to raise. So in chapter two, you offer some histories of the major scholarly associations in communication, including the National Communication Association, the International Communication Association, and the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication. You divide these histories roughly into two, communic the communication story and the journalism story. Can you tell us a little bit about how these scholarly associations adopted the term communication and what it meant for them to do so? Well, 
the speech folks were were uh, anxious to re remove speeches as a definer of, of what they did. And so uh, they found communication to be a good term to be able to use. Now they 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 fought amongst themselves about how to use it and 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 what kind of emphasis it should have, but they but they liked the term communication. Journalism, on the other hand, liked the term journalism, and and they adopt <laughs> and they adopted vast communication. Uh, I won't say kicking and screaming, but but they did because uh, they had some very well known scholars who started studying mass communication, and they uh, decided that that they really needed to have that as part of journalism. But journalism was always the the, the, the label that. Uh, that scholars in that discipline uh, were, were trying to use for themselves. But on the other hand, it was always a fight between the journalism professionals, the people who had been journalists and who were now teaching journalism, and the scholars who, who wanted to have some kind of a, a, an academic and theoretical basis and not just simply uh, people who uh, were or eye shades and uh, and and worked on on manual typewriters and uh, and 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 you know hit deadlines for for their copy. Um, they're both they're both fine disciplines, and I I argue that they're both part of a, a much larger discipline of communication. Journalists may disagree with me about that, however. Uh, so. In the third chapter, we get to kind of the heart of things, the period 1964 to 1982. Uh, tell us a little bit about why these years were particularly important to the formation of the discipline. Well, there were markers at, at, at each end. And interestingly enough, the markers were in journalism. Uh, in 1964, uh, the journalism uh, folks were they were still figuring out what their scholarly society should be like. And they had a meeting where they were debating all of this and, uh, and, and what they decided at this particular meeting without, not without a lot of, of, of fuss was that they should let the scholars into the association. So the mass communication people joined the association kind of with, with the other scholars, the, the journalism teachers, Kind of kicking and screaming uh, at the at the time, but uh, they did allow the researchers to have time at their annual meetings, which they had only they had not done in the past. The the mass communication scholars had had to go to the journalism meetings and then hold what they called rump sessions, uh, separate from the separate from the, the journalism meetings. So now all of a sudden they could petition to start uh, interest groups with, within the journalism society, and they could have their meetings in conjunction with the main journalism meeting. And that was a big deal. And in fact, there were quite a few uh, types of, of scholarly research that became established as interest groups with, within what was then called AEJ, and uh, Association for Education in Journalism. And, and they, uh, it just kept growing and growing. 
And, and, and on the other end of things, uh, 1982 was also had a marker and, that, and it was also a journalism marker because that was the year that AEJ decided that they needed to add mass communication to their name. So they became, they went from being the Association for Education and Journalism to the Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communication. Now, interestingly enough, mass communication was an outmoded term by the time they, they got to it. Um, it. Media studies had actually become a, a term that, that had a lot more currency by then. But, uh, but the, the journalism scholars were, they, were, they went kicking and screaming to changing their name. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, they, they still had a lot of trouble with it into, into the end of, of the 20th century. Um, but um, I, I'd say if you, if you talk to journalism folks now, they, they would uh, embrace the concept of mass communication. They would also embrace the concept of media studies, um, but, uh, but, but their association is, uh, is, is, has this name and they're not going to change it. it. It's going to be very hard to change again. So from there, you, we go to the, the sort of the main part of the book, which are the five strands of communication scholarship. And, and I want to talk about each one of these in turn. Um, you begin with communication as the formation of change of individual and public opinion. Yes. And, and, and this is how I got these strands was to, was to go back and, and look at uh, how scholarship developed both in speech and in journalism and try to find some, some, some topics that I could give names to uh, that were common to to both speech and journalism, and 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 so they may be a little tortured at times. I, this one I think is, <laughs> but but they're um, but but they but they try to embrace each each of these tries to embrace both areas of of the discipline, uh, both traditions of the discipline, the speech tradition, which goes back into the, uh, well, both of them go back into, into the, uh, the decade after the turn of the 20th century. And, uh, and, and speech was, speech was focused primarily on public speaking and on, on speaking activities. And, and they embraced communication as a way of having a, a, a theoretical base. Uh, and journalism eventually did the same thing with mass communication, but it, uh, it took longer and it took, it took having really fine scholars uh, develop work in mass communication and, and get prestigious appointments at, at, at very fine universities. And, and then, and then the, the journalism teachers were, were happy to be uh, identified that as well, I think. Sure. Um, but, but, they, but, but yes, you asked about formation and change of individual and public opinion. So, so there's a, there's a strand of scholarship in, in, in speech communication that focuses on persuasion and interpersonal persuasion. There's a form of scholarship in, in mass communication and, uh, that focuses on, on how public opinion is changed. And, and, and there were some very fine theories that were developed in mass communication that, that are still are still being researched 
uh, today and still being taught today that uh, uh, that were that were developed during that time. The speech people, their path was a bit different, and their their theories have grown and evolved and changed and uh, and become far more numerous than the, than those than those journal than those mass communication theories that were developed during this period. But yeah, uh, they do. They seem- both work, worked on similar kinds of ideas. Yeah, the 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 mass comm ones do seem a little bit. I, I don't maybe robust. Uh, they seem to have lasted a little bit longer. Yes. Yes. And, and they do, they did because, because not only were they good theories, but they had very strong individual people who started them and who became identified with them and who trained graduate students in, in how to use them and, and who, who made sure that those theories were continued to be researched and, and, and developed. And speech didn't didn't encounter that didn't, didn't didn't go in that direction. So from there we move on to uh, communication as language use. Yes, and we would think that 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 that's something that would be uh, just intuitively obvious, and and it is. But but people took a lot of different approaches in in terms of of how language is used, and 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 you had. Uh, you this you had more approaches in speech, which again is a pattern. Um, and in in journalism, you had language use was was sort of subsumed under under other theories, and it was way it became ways of looking at how uh, of analyzing rather than 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 being an integral part of the theory. So you had content analysis, which is very which was really developed in in journalism and. Uh, and and became a, a critical tool for for how uh, journal journalists journalism scholars do their work, um, and 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 that kind of analysis is has has its its strong points and its weak points, but uh, uh, but it is something that has like a lot of what goes on in journalism, it is, is something that became institutionalized and has survived. Um. So then, uh, communication as information transmission. Well, this is the one if that when everybody thinks about communication, they, they where think we about start. It. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and it's third because it's not where it started. <laughs> it, it, it's actually you can find things back in uh, in it for for public opinion and individual and 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 persuasion research. You can find things. For language use that go back further than this information transmission idea, but it was started after World War II, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it was started because there were there were technology was coming into the fore, and there were theories that were developed not by communication people but by mathematicians mm-hmm. and by people who called their 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 themselves cybernetics. Um, Scholars who studied cybernetics, or or how people figured out uh, what transmission was about, because after World War II, uh, the country decided that in order to have a, a thriving economy, which it did in the 1950s, they had to have better communication technologies. So they had a telephone, but telephone lines were not necessarily very 
very easy to deal with because not only were they uh, oftentimes shared by it with other people, and I, I re I'm old enough to remember uh, picking up the phone and having an operator say number please, and mm -hmm. and also having party lines. Uh, but uh, I remember party lines too. I, I'm yeah. <laughs> but it was so so. Here's so communication. You had to have a theory of of how to if you were say had some kind of interference on the on the line and it was uh it was an interference that was helping that happened periodically but happened in a, in a pattern and I'd say it was taking out every fifth word uh could you figure out the message and what they what they found was in their research was yes you could because it would be a pain but you could <laughs> um, and that's because language is, itself is redundant enough to to allow, and grammar allows for redundancy. So it it you can understand the message even if you didn't, if you couldn't hear all of it, or or if there was interference. It was they talked about it. The concept is noise, but it was any kind of interference that that would be in in, in the channel, and. This was a very appealing model for, and it was adapted for human communication. And it turned out not to be such a great model for human communication, but uh, but it, it was, the, the idea was, yes, you had a source, a message, a channel, and a receiver, and those were the elements. And, and that lasted for quite a while before people decided that uh, that, that wasn't quite uh, sophisticated enough uh, for what we were really looking at. But it, but it persisted. I was a few years ago did uh, an assessment report for our department here, and we had to delve back into the the founding of our department. Uh, this university is relatively young. We were you know founded in the 1950s, and the Department of Communication was even later than that. And we were started by a Harvard trained psychologist. Uh, who got attracted to questions of communication through the lens of cybernetics. Um, and that person was then motivated by a theater teacher um, to begin a department of communication. So, and there you go. Yeah. And, <laughs> you've, you've, you've identified both ends of both ends of the discipline. <laughs> and, and here we are. Um, so the, the next chapter in the book is communication as developer of relationships. Can you tell us a little bit about what goes on in scholarship related to, to this idea? Well, this idea, uh, actually dates from other famous scholars. It, it, it dates from the work of Gregory Bateson, who was an anthropologist and who was married to Margaret Mead. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Wilbur Schramm, who is one of the, 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 the key uh, figures in, in the discipline, um, shared a carpool with, with Margaret Mead during mm. World War II when they both worked on, on propaganda research and, uh, and how to counter propaganda uh, mm. in, uh, that, was, that was being used during, during World War II. Um, but um, the, it, the speech people latched on to this developer of relationships and, and they decided 
in their wisdom that uh, that that this was an interesting context to study. They used the word context, and and so you could have one-on-one communication. You could have people communicating in a group, or you could have people communicating one to many, which would be public speaking, which is where they started. So this was an elaboration of of what the speech people were already doing. And they were trying to figure out what was unique to these individual contexts. Uh, The journalism folks approached it somewhat differently. Um, They were looking at, oh boy, um, they, they were looking at how journalists developed relationships with not only sources, but also that, that they develop relationships with technology uh, so that, that you, you had some trust in, in, in technology maybe that, that would, would, would work along. Um, and, and you would be able to learn how to communicate not just via technology, but but to use technology to your own advantage. So so this was uh, this was the idea of a relationship was something that was that, that was important to both groups, but but uh, much more important to uh, the speech communication scholars. And and they uh, they they went through this period where they they were studying the context and then they realized that no what they were really studying was relationships and uh and there were and 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 um gregory bateson's work was adopted by adopted by uh paul Watzlawick, who was uh, a stanford uh, uh psychiatrist i believe and uh and and some colleagues and they wrote a book called pragmatics of human communication which which Again, was not from not from people in the communication discipline, but uh, was hugely influential and and changed the way uh, that kind of study was uh, was working. So the the penultimate chapter um, you describe as communication as definer, interpreter, and critic of culture. So what's going on here? Well, there's there's two different strands that work in the same in, in in the same label here, and and one of them is is how do people how does culture influence how people communicate, and and you can you can look back to Edward Hall, the great anthropologist in the silent language, and and how he uh, decided that nonverbal how he he identified nonverbal communication as as a a key component of, of the communication process, but and how he identified culture as influencing how commu- how communication was was used and 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 developed, and and Hall was um, uh, Hall's work was very was very influential, especially among speech scholars. Uh, although journalists were interested in it too, because it influenced uh, how they were would communicate with people with other from other cultures. So, so, so the the one strand is how do people communicate within their own culture, and how do people communicate across cultures? Um, but then there was this other strand that that came along, and 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 it developed out of work 
in Britain by um, Stuart Hall, uh, who was a media scholar. And this was actually key in the development of, of the idea of media studies. And, and what Stuart Hall talked about was how media is its own culture and how, how media develop, uh, develop cultural expectations uh, in, in people who interact with it. And, and, and he was looking at, at the whole notion of society and how society was built uh, via media use. And, and that became something that, uh, uh, that was, it was quite well, well used and, and was something was new and exciting. And, and there were actually a couple of different strands of that too, but I think I'm going to let you read the book in order to find out about, about those, those different approaches to cultural studies. But cultural studies has, has become a major way of looking at communication and your find, and it also influences a lot of scholarship, current scholarship in, in, in communication. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So in, in the conclusion, you offer a reassessment of all of these strands as they continue sort of post-1982, but also you gesture towards what you think might be some new strands that are taking shape. Can you describe those for us? Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm, and, and you got me, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta look. Um, and what I, where did I, do? I performance? Yes. Okay. There were a couple of a couple of other strands. Yeah. That, that I thought, and one of them was was the idea of performance, and and performance is 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 a a concept that has been it's a slippery concept. It's been used in in a lot of different ways, uh, and again, people in in. Uh, in speech communication, which eventually, by the way, transitioned to, to just use the word communication or use communication studies as, as being uh, the, the way of labeling it, but they dropped speech ultimately because it, it was part of their tradition, but it wasn't the way that they 
it didn't really describe who they were and it gave people the wrong impression. But performance was definitely part of speech and, and, and it was a way of, of focusing on how people gave speeches and the, um, uh, and that the, so it was, it was also a way of how people could interpret uh, literature and, and there were, were even journals that were developed and, and lots of scholarship. And performance has, has finally transitioned into, into being a, something that's used as, as an ethnographic tool. So if you're looking at how cultures operate, part of what you can do is you can look, you can look at how do they perform uh, what they do. Um, I, have, I have a colleague at San Diego State who looks at disability as performance and, and how people with disabilities are alter their communication and 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 in, in some cases have their disability influence their communication in some cases have it define their their communication with with other people and and this is all fascinating work i think um the, the other one was i'm sorry yeah. I'm getting at the other one that's been week. But uh, uh, essentially, uh, in the end, I... Oh, I developer of identity. Developer of identity. There we go. All right. <laughs> and in fact, that, uh, in fact, that leads, that leads from, from this work on, mm -hmm. on how on performance. The two of them are, the, the two of them are interrelated in, in, in some ways because because we perform our own identities and you can look at them from a performance standpoint, but you can also look at identity as, as what, what groups do you identify with? Uh, so we have, we have a Black Lives Matter movement going on in, in the country and, uh, and it's an important movement uh, and people who are identifying with as either being black or as as being part of a culture that has been oppressed and and that and that needs to be lifted up uh, in in positive ways, and so Black Lives Matter is is a, is a positive force for for lifting uh, those kinds of things up, and you've you've got uh, uh, you've got critical race theory. That isn't really specifically a communication theory, but uh, but has also influenced uh, those those kinds of things, and and has become a, a, a catchword for what's wrong with the country in, in some in some quarters, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, but but you get yourself identified, and 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 you do things. You you come up with theories that are interesting to people. And there will be people who will pick up on them and try to turn them around and, and use them for, for other purposes. <laughs> so it, it, I think that's in, in, ge in general, a, uh, actually a, uh, a positive thing about communication is that people are paying attention to our scholarship and, and they are, uh, they're, they're using it for their own purposes, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes not, not in such positive ways. 
So at the end of the book, um, you pose the question that communication became a discipline during this time, and then ask the question, but did it remain one? And so I'm wondering, um, you know, we're 30 years, you know, 40 years past 1982. Um, are, do, you th- do you see this, do you see communication as a discipline as still a live question? And I guess what I'm—I guess what I mean is that I've also served on a committee that vets new programs, and recently one of the one of the ongoing—oh, I call it a frustration, I suppose—is that almost every program that was trying to be introduced to the university curriculum had to take great pains to describe itself as interdisciplinary, um, and and. and to the point where a lot of it kind of strained credulity um, when they were calling themselves that. And I'm wondering, since communication, you know, even the way that we've been talking about it today is so transdisciplinary, do you you still see this as a a live issue for us? Um, I do. Uh, In fact, uh, this was when when my book was reviewed uh, and the reviewers were very helpful. Um, I I found that uh, they, they asked the question of, well, is communication really interdisciplinary? And so I had to go back and do some research on what is interdisciplinary. And I, I found some, some, some very good scholarship from other, from other disciplines. And, and, and I came to the conclusion that, that communication has some components of interdisciplinarity, but, but it, it doesn't fit the model exactly. Uh, what, what communication, has done as a discipline is is that it's it's been on this path and it, it as a lot of disciplines are it's been on its own journey and 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 as it's as it's uh, developed it has grown and changed um, and and sometimes people st- are still working in in lines that were that were uh, developed a long time ago, and in some cases, they're they're they're, they're working on on pushing the envelope forward uh, with with new ideas and new ways of looking at things, and uh, and that can look like interdisciplinarity, but but I think that uh, it, it my it's, I I take comfort in that these five strands that I identified are still being researched and, and are, are still being developed and all of them are, are, are still important parts of, of a communication discipline. So uh, I, I, that's why I think that, uh, that we, we may look interdisciplinary, but, uh, but if, you, if you break it down more carefully, you find that, that we really are just a complex discipline. You, you, you can't put a label on us. And that's because of our history and and we and and how how we how we tried to shun the idea that we were a field and and embrace the idea that 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 we had something to contribute, but it was multifaceted. So before we wrap up today, let me ask uh, and here recognizing that uh, you are an emeritus professor, uh, what are you working on next? Well, I've I've had a project um, that's been that I, I had to put on hold in order to, to work on this book, 
and and it's a project on a particular scholar's work and and how that scholar how's that scholar's work developed and how it had been used so so this was a scholar who 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 tried to develop a a concept of how people develop meaning how how, how people develop and use meaning and he he came, came up with a a very strong and, and very complex theory, and uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, he died at a relatively early age. And uh, his wife has, who was working with him, actually on developing consulting uses for this theory, hmm. uh, and 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 had come up with a number of them. Uh, wanted to wanted to develop a book on on it, and I had said I would work with her on it. And um, I'm. I think that's. I think that's where we're going. We'll we'll see. I if what would how we would divide that up would be. I would work on, on on discussing the theory, and she would work on discussing the application. And she's been very successful as as a communication consultant. And and I think, I think, applying our work and using it in in. Uh, in practical settings is really important. Well, very good. Uh, we'll look forward to hearing with that when it comes out. Uh, let me know and uh, send it along. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, Billy. And thank, and thank you for, for being interested in, and wanting to talk to me about it. Oh, very good. Uh, once again, my guest today has been William F. Edie, the author of When Communication Became a Discipline from Lexington Books, an imprint of Roman and Littlefield. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network.